Alright, alright, alright. Welcome back, my friends, for the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, you're joined by your boy, Heavy Days, here from the Upside Down Library, and we are hugely appreciative of our fantastic sponsors. You know them and love them. Seeds here now. Number one seed bank in America, not just a guarantee on germination, guarantee on satisfaction. If you don't like it at the end of the grow, hit them up. They will make it right. They will sort you out. Why would you go with someone who doesn't have such a guarantee? Likewise, huge shout out to our friends at Copet Biological Systems. For all the best predators and predation technology in the game, you have to check out Copet and their products. If you've got aphids, get the Afiparm. If you've got spider mites, get the Spidex Vital. How many times we've got to say it, guys? A clean garden is next to godliness. What more could you want? Then peace of mind knowing that your plants are pest and pathogen free. Check them out, Copet Biological. Thank you so much, guys. Huge shout out to our friends at Pulse Sensors. If you've got one room, three rooms, multi state facilities, you need Pulse Sensors. The reality is there's many variables that can hold your crop back, and you may not even be aware they're not optimized. Get yourself a Pulse Sensor, dial in your parameters. Increase yield, resin, flavor, all the information at your fingertips. Check it out, guys. Pulse sensors. Get serious. Get a pulse. And last but not least, the Patreon gang. Thank you so much for your support. You are the lifeblood of the show. We could not make episodes without the support of the Patreon gang. We are hugely grateful. If you want to help support the show, get access to early content, unheard interviews, exclusive Patreon-only episodes, as well as monthly genetic giveaways, check out the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. Huge shout out to the Patreon guys. We appreciate you. And as always, we couldn't make these episodes happen without the Patreon gang. We love and appreciate you guys so much. On this episode today, we're joined by my buddy, a true turp connoisseur, and our first auto breeder on the show, Sean of Flying Lion Research, here to talk all things auto breeding, Californian cannabis history, future predictions, all the lowdown on turps, concentrations, extraction. This was a fun one, guys. I hope you enjoy it. Alrighty, gang. We're here for another one. Thank you so much for joining me. And on this episode, we are joined today by a friend who's been making some waves in both the concentrate and auto scene for a good minute now. Very thrilled to be able to talk to him today. Thank you so much, Sean of Flying Lion Research, for joining me today. Happy to be here. Lovely to have you on, my friend. First question we've been asking people lately, what have you been smoking on today? Uh, Today... We've been dabbing on the lemon fat man. Um, it's the flavor I dreamed up long ago um, from the lemon tree days. We always dreamed of something being so lemony, but that actually would hit you like an OG. And so that's where the original project came from. Uh, Bodhi, uh, plant more seeds, finally fixed up the whole lemon tree debacle by getting the original lemon G. And hitting it with his, you know, hash plant, you know, pollen, like he does. And so that was the lemon hash plant version two seeds I got to test out. And it had that smell. I hit it with the fatso cut um, that I got from Finest. 
first ever tissue cultured cut that anyone I've ever talked to was able to hit nice pollen to essentially, you know, not wrapping any diseases into the DNA from making seeds for the first time available. It's a great tool for breeders really. And so all the progeny have been high yielding and do what we want to do, which is uh, yield for fresh frozen live rosin and, you know, those 90 U heads and have that lemon terp flavor that's really hard to capture. Yeah. Oh. And the main reason is, you know, it's like you're doing work all day and it's a, it's a work high. Yeah. Keeps you going. That sounds delightful. And I love how many different avenues you gave me to go on. Let's quickly start off. I want some Bodhi love. When I was cruising through your Instagram, I saw you got a lot of different experience with various Bodhi strains. What are some of the memorable ones to you? Um, well, it all started out with his um, Afghani crosses with his uh, G1388 hash plant pollen. And basically anything that we've always run from him for the fresh frozen process, the flavor lingers in your mouth longer than we've ran 20, 30 breeders at my farm over many, many years. And so many of his things were just everyone asked for it again. Uh, let's see, the Wookiee Orgasmatron was a real winner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he's got lots of far out names. Uh, his Jalalabad star, uh, his strawberry milk. Uh, yeah, just so many winners. Love it. Yeah, there's there's endless ones we could go into. You just referenced, you know, flavors that linger. And I guess to sort of tie it back to the, the lemon tree, I would have to say lemon tree is probably up there with some of like, you know, in terms of flavors that linger, it's got to be in the top five for me. Do you think there are others that are better than it or is it likewise for you one of those really standout ones? Uh, I mean, I always thought the lemon tree was amazing until I grew the lemon G uh, myself and saw that it had no real structure as a nice fuzz ball, perfect for extraction, perfect for what I was working, you know, looking for really. And then to hear Bodhi worked with it to increase its potency was exactly the kind of seeds I was looking for. Um, I think the sour diesel cut that um, the lemon tree is made out of really watered down the like lemon tree high that is like supposedly kind of in the marketing, I feel like. So it's just good to actually bring that terpene. So people are like, oh, wow, it's unmistakable. Yeah, and I'm I'm not super up to date with the origins of the lemon G, but from what I read, people say like it might just be like a Colombian or something, and and that sort of matches some of the descriptions you hear. What's your thoughts on the origin of the lemon G? Um, I mean, it's pretty common knowledge that people say it came from Ohio, so it's the Ohio lemon G cut, which was passed around in the eighties. And from there, yeah, we would need to do the whole, you know, genome mapping and terpene analysis and then look at, you know, stuff like that and actually deduce where the actual land race came from. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So 
it, just to rewind for a moment, you were talking about how um, hoplite and viroid is sort of everywhere and you were able to get that uh, tissue cultured fat. So I'd love to hear your perspective because obviously, you know, being in California, you're surrounded by it. How bad is the situation in your mind in regards to the hoplite and virus? I mean, people are finding it in plants that they think are healthy. So that's a big, like, you know, scary thought, like, oh, there's nothing wrong. And experienced growers are getting lab tests and finding it's not in the unhealthy plant. It just needed more minerals. It's in this one. So it's just kind of sitting there, hidden. Sounds real scary, honestly. You can't look at it with a microscope. You've got to take tissue samples to figure out if you have this virus. Um I mean, most everyone in the last five years, I would say 95% of people I've talked to have had to eliminate their mom rooms and reset everything. Absolutely. Do you think it'll come to a point where we have to, everyone tries to start fresh at the same time? Or do you think it's just going to be one of those things that's just going to persist forever now? Uh, I think just like anything, you know, the genetics are here to adapt and they're here for us. So like what I did this year, putting seeds out and letting things succumb to diseases. And, you know, that's the real breeding work. We can eventually breed away from it. Yeah, interesting. I, I've been wondering that one myself, but that's that's an angle I haven't thought of. I like that. So just to come back to the very start of all of this, where we, you were saying, you know, this this uh, the lemon hybrid you've been enjoying today, it's a, it's a good work strain. I love the idea of work strains. They're the exact sort of things I want to smoke myself. What sort of things lend themselves to that category in your mind? Besides obviously just saying, you know, sativas. Are there any specific sorts of strains you think really fit that category? Well, it's really the combination of limonene and alpha-pinene being high in the extract that's going to tighten up all your blood vessels, vasoconstrictor versus vasodilator associated with indica effects. So that constrictive action causes your heart to pump harder. You feel like you're ready to do push-ups or run a mile. That's a great thing when you're uh, worked all day the day before or worked all night, pushed yourself and your body's sore in the morning, but yet the plants are ready. They want to get in the freezer. <laughs> I love that the plants are ready to get in the freezer. Tell me more about your fresh frozen activities because I'll be honest, I, I still have a lot to learn about fresh frozen. What how would what's how would you sell it to me? Well, we've been fresh freezing here on our farm for seven years now. So I've been doing it longer than most anyone I've talked to. We've done the dry ice, we've done the scientific freezers. We've done generators in the back of the truck. If I was going to sell it to you, I would say, hey, if you're a farmer, you only get paid for the total weight of cannabinoids that you produce. And those finer cannabinoids are evaporating in your curing room. And that's why it smells good in there. So if you're okay with burning some of the finest effort that you ever had every year, go ahead and cure your crop. Stay in the past. I'll be here fresh freezing. Like a Zen monk. I love it. I love it. Okay. Because I noticed on your Instagram, you had something that I had never heard of before. It was what you called fresh frozen, 
fresh frozen pressurized rosin. Tell me about the pressurized component. That seems like quite innovative to me. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people do cold cure or what's known as fresh pressed rosin, where they just take it out of the rosin press and put it in a jar. Um, this is a way to actually conceal some of the qualities of your rosin. Because if you know what you're doing, you can squeeze out your rosin and then freeze it and keep it fresh pressed. And it kind of hides if it'll char the dab nail later or if it'll be harsh. It just all looks clear. And so if you whip your 90U, which is like what West Coast Alchemy does, that's kind of the brand that sets the standards right now. Um, you got this wet look on your 90U and that's the terpenes coating the THCA in this nice kind of achievable quality where you're like, oh, okay, so the indoor or really organic outdoor from experienced growers, that'll have this really wet look because it has a high amount of terpenes. And that's what people want is a lot of flavor with their rosin. And it's hard to find a lot of flavor in rosin because you know only a few cultivars work for that process genetically brilliant a lot of a lot of details there i'm gonna have to go over again tell me how do you think we can get more of the general public onto these higher types of concentrates such as hash 90 iu things like that because i think there's a conundrum in that like you need to show people of course but like there's not a lot of it around so what's your thoughts well the price of rosin is dropping and people are learning to fresh freeze and the collapse of the flower market with the overproduction on the white market and the cartels has pushed small craft growers into understanding fresh frozen whether they wanted to or not So if you've got a family and you've got a big grow setup and you've got everything rolling, if you dried everything last year, you're still sitting on it and you're looking at selling it at a loss if you want any cash whatsoever before the next flood comes in 20 days, two weeks. That's it. Interesting. And and with all that excess stock from the white market, do you think eventually a bunch of it will get turned into just like simple concentrates and that'll have like a big flood on the market? Yes. And that's why all your white market investors are pushing for interstate commerce because we're at the breaking point in the next year. 95% of cannabis companies didn't turn a profit last year. So You've either got billionaires who want to keep losing money to prepare for federal legalization so that their brand is ready, or you got to make some sort of lobbying effort between a state that's just coming online and doesn't have a good environment to grow. Do you foresee that federal legalization and those opening of borders happening in the near future? Uh, It's hard to say. There's so many things at play and so many things distracting from worldwide weed, as I call it. Um, You know, this this amazing resource that can unite the world, uh, the first multi-trillion dollar industry that could uh, unite third world countries and first world countries and put everyone on a different playing field as far as global terpene production and a global blockchain to 
you know, honestly take care of all the logistics, right? It's like people want to buy weed. We have the World Wide Web. Why isn't it just you can just go on there and see like, hey, I'm a farmer. I do. These are the soil tests. This is my terroir. These are the terpenes that Grass Valley produces better than anyone. I'm sure there's other areas that are going to produce unique terpenes. But here in Grass Valley, we can produce a wide variety of nice ones. So that terroir will be understood on the world market if everyone can just get over themselves and see that we can employ millions of people. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool to hear. I've been thinking about this because I've been getting more into wine recently and I was wondering, do you think that will be the end state we get to where, like, for example, if you're in France in the Loire, you're probably growing Chenin Blanc. Do you think that's what will happen to, like, what you're describing where, like, if you're in Grass Valley, you're probably growing X strain because it's just the terroir matches or something like that? Or do you think it'll be more variable than, say, wine where it's quite homogenous? It'll be more variable than wine, but it will become more homogenous, but that will lead to like the ultimate experience for the consumer. Because as the real small market farmers survive, then they'll have to use the lab and the soil tests to differentiate themselves and have genetics being made on site to make true land races for our place, just like everyone else has done. It's this whole colony colonization of weed that's been happening, right? Like Skunk Man Sam and that whole crew from Santa Cruz. You know, I grew up in Santa Cruz. I'm familiar with where Blue Dream was created uh, over in Last Chance. There's some smart hippies, you know, who were like, oh, wait, like these tribes have already done thousands of years of work to hybridize their unique cannabis strains they don't have airplanes or breeding sites like let's go to thailand and collect their seeds let's go to pakistan let's go to oaxaca let's cross all those together and that's where they made blue dream the number one weed ever sold yet those tribes still don't have running water or solar panels so that's that's the real next step right the ethics of genetics worldwide yeah, hugely. You can't deny that um, the the funds are not getting back to a lot of these indigenous areas. I'd be interested to know, in this like sort of future situation we describe, do you think people would be growing um, like more likely modern stuff that's refined to suit the area? Or do you think certain places will just literally go back to land race? I think with the global understanding of worldwide weed and the market potential and the pharmaceutical understanding, and then that joining, hopefully in a good way, it will lead to labs being built everywhere where weed has been indigenously bred for thousands of years. If you've got Israel, a big corporation willing to buy $40 million worth of weed from Canada just to research, not to smoke, just to put in their gas chromatography machines and genetic analysis machines, then we've got this onus uh, on us as humans to build those labs and get that information to those local tribes. And we'll find some unique terpene in there that's going to heal all these diseases that are caused from our modern society. And then those people will have something valuable to hold on to. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. We've never really brought that topic up on the show, but I'd be interested to know, do you think anyone is 
even remotely close to Israel in terms of their research or interest in cannabis, like medically? No, no one has the investment potential. They put more in. They, I mean, they've only released that they had the bioreactor last week to produce cannabinoids without plants. Yeah. That was wild. Yeah, I was reading that. I was like, that has massive like scalability production and they could just be pumping that out. Big time. Uh, it's, you know, the whole thing about like the ethics of CBD um, a lot of people who maybe weren't involved in cannabis grew and overproduced CBD and then went bankrupt. It's kind of magical cannabis spirit protects herself from being too taken advantage of. Um, but yeah, but the real goal, right, is to have CBD super cheap so that these $40 CBD bombs don't have 30 milligrams of CBD. They have 3000 milligrams because it just costs $3 for that much now. So that's what we want is for everyone to have these things available so everyone can benefit. And then the price point won't alienate most people who aren't into cannabis already as far as you know, getting more people to understand. Yeah, nice. And I mean, while we're on the topic quickly, are there any minor cannabinoids that you're particularly passionate or a fan of? Oh, absolutely. Um, we're having great results with uh, CBG. Uh, from the Matterhorn strain from the hemp industry. Uh, the pure CBG distillate uh, has about 80% naturally occurring CBG and 10% CBD. Absolutely amazing. I've been giving it to all sorts of my friends and people tell me from all walks of life, from all different diseases uh, my one friend has a gastrointestinal disease where he throws up unexpectedly and then he has lots of nausea and he would spend a lot of time trying to find certain weeds that would help that. And sometimes he would, and then sometimes the same strain wouldn't do anything and make it worse. And he finally found CBG. He told me every time he adds it to cannabis, his nausea is gone. The same with a uh, 50 year old uh, basketball aficionado, I will call him. He loves basketball, but he's getting old and the joints, the pain. He tells me all about how he just can only play for 10, 20 minutes before his legs and knees hurt. And after I gave him CBG, came up to me ecstatic. You know, Sean, like the CBG, like it, it, it went inside. I, I played a two-hour game. I, I haven't done this in 10 years. So those kind of experiences, you know, they keep me dedicated to the whole cannabis realm yeah that's beautiful to hear it can give that sort of relief to someone and improve their quality of life in your personal experience do you feel like the individual pharmacology is like person to person or do you think it is like oh if you have um this particular issue cbg will work well for everyone I would say CBG has a higher efficacy for most people. It does have specific uses, just like anything. And there's CBN and other minor cannabinoids that do have other, you know, pros and cons. But for CBG, it's, I would say, the panacea. Because it's known as the mother cannabinoid, from what I've been told from chemists, all the other acetates are created from CBG within the plant. So it creates CBD and terpenes wow yeah that's really cool to hear 
Uh, just to rewind for a moment, I, I forgot to ask you, so I want to quickly do it before we move on. In that future scenario we were talking about where, you know, there's like more federal and maybe even international legalization of things, where do you think Fresh Frozen would sit in that realm? Do you think it would be like one of the top dogs or still something which is, you know, upper echelon, you know, like your high tier whiskey equivalent of alcohol or something like that? I would say the concentrate market is growing steadily. If you look at, you know, any of the sales on the white market and any of the trends, uh, obviously to take a nice dab requires a laser thermometer and a quartz bucket and a torch. And so there's going to be a slow adaptation when there's a complicated tool set to anything like that. And so that's why you see a big push to uh, rosin disposable pens or cartridges. And that technology is going to keep getting better. So someone can just literally suck on a tube and taste the best rosin ever. More people are always going to do that. I, I mean, we had a big reggae show here in Grass Valley. And all the guys who breed and grow cannabis here were excited to be backstage to give their rosin pen to marlon asher or you know stefan marley or all the guys you know oh fun my cannabis thing oh we have the best rosin pen because if you think about it right the worldwide weed market happens like people want a bunch of pens for like birthday or a party big wedding celebration oh like we fell in love over this cannabis flavor and so we're having it made up in pens so everyone at our wedding gets one it's it's just like natural like it's the flavor it's it's gonna be easier for a inexperienced consumer to articulate the differences of the cannabis high with rosin or live resin diamonds as opposed to normal cannabis fresh frozen allows for those terpenes to really tip the scales of is this super exciting is this super grounding am i super tired is this cannabis super narcotic if you gave just a beginner you know sour diesel and some lemon g it'd be hard for them to just totally articulate oh okay i'm is this one super racy but with that amount of terpenes hitting your brain at the right time without any carbon in there it's nice and clean uh, no cough if it's done right, right? That's a smooth thing for a lot of new consumers. They don't want it to be harsh or to burn. And so all those things are remedied by doing the fresh frozen harvest and going through that work to extract it. Wow, what a beautiful answer. I, I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. And I've, I've got to like tell you this quick story now because I don't think I've ever told you this, but at one of the Emerald Cups one year, I think it was like 2017, 2018, you came up to me and you gave me a dab of this thing. I don't remember what it was, but to this day, it's still the terpiest thing I've ever smoked. And honestly, oh, it, nice. really, uh, it really helped me understand how like some guys can get full into like that whole, um, the terp slurper dude. Like it, it was like the light bulb moment for me. And so my question is, do you remember what that dab was by any chance? And like, what was your light bulb moment? Let's see here. I remember you had like a little elephant uh, rig that you, that was what I took a hit out of. It was like a little elephant, I think. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So that was definitely the grape crinkle diamonds. Yes. So because I, you know, wanted to be known as doing something unique in my lane, I was breeding 
and I still am breeding autoflowers, also known as Ruderalis, for concentrates. And I wanted to explore all the new terpenes that were within that whole realm since at the time there was just Blue Dream, OG, Sour D, Cherry Pie, Diamonds that everyone had already tried, you know, along with your million varieties of gelato diamonds that all tasted the same. So the Ruderalis seemed to make sense. Uh, it was totally organic, uh, unlike Light Depth, which requires you to build massive infrastructure and have greenhouses, PVC, tarps, and the nine yards. You really put seed into the earth if you're going to farm resin, uh, which is what I do, and breed resin for the consumer, right, to have unique experiences. So... Yeah, that grape crinkle really put me on the map because it was, you know, I could just bring the frozen weed pre uh, Prop 64 to companies and then they would make live resin because they knew I didn't use pesticides and I had a permit to grow. So everything was great and my diamonds really got out there and I heard a lot of cool feedback because no consumers had ever tried a Ruderalis diamond, you know, they didn't even know what that is. So is a great you know kind of mystery to explore now that i'm seven years deep in that mystery oh it's a whole world and there's a lot more to go yeah tell me tell me a bit more about your first experiences growing autos and how it was you came to be like you know what this is what i'm going to launch into so the first time i saw autos was 2007 and it was right around the time where we had gotten good at, you know, selling weed in San Francisco and we had our art gallery and everything was going good. And, you know, right around a certain time in summer, all the depths would uh, sell out. So there'd be no more depths and it'd be like, oh, you have to wait till October for outdoor season. You know, no one's got indoor in the summer. And this girl showed up and she had the most lemony big buds I, I had seen in a long time and they just looked so fresh I was like when were these cured she's like oh two weeks ago I grew them in my backyard in Oakland it's an autoflower and I just was so amazed of the quality and the taste and the high and the timing at the market right right when everyone was willing to pay whatever and she had it perfectly and I asked her about it and I bought a bunch of seeds from different autoflower companies and I had mixed results and finally found a good breeder, um, a Fisto from Spain. Great, great guys. I worked with them and sent them pictures and say, you know, made seeds and, you know, made extracts, sent them lab results. And they were like, wow, this guy really takes our seeds seriously. So they sent me their experimental seeds so I could get ahead of the whole Ruderalis wave so I could have my own flavors. And yeah, I've you know just been surfing ever since. Man, that's so neat to hear. Um, obviously, you know, Mephisto is regarded in the industry as a really top-notch auto breeder. Um, what what of the, uh, the sort of unreleased lines that they sent you caught your attention what did you decide to run with so uh, about yeah six or nine months before they released their pink panama and their um glue strains their orange glue and their uh, orange sunshine strains um 
basically I had these testers and I was able to breed with them for, you know, the live resin process. And because the THC was so fresh and there was no diseases or spray or anything because the autoflowers are so fast, uh, the bugs just couldn't figure it out and climb onto them. And so hearing from the lab, they would say, oh, the diamonds crashed out of your thing in like four days. It usually takes three weeks. This is amazing. So I would breed those varieties that worked for the process of live resin into the experimental, experimental ones they gave me. And people love the pink Panama. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. That's so awesome to hear. And you got me thinking, is there like any differences in like selection in terms of how you do autos versus females? Because you sort of alluded that like you use the lab to help guide you. Do you just also use the general principles of breeding? Like, you know, this is sort of my criteria I like to see. How does it differ? Well, it's, you can't hold on to a trait. It's like riding a wave. So when you're, reversing your winner which you're guessing is a winner from the seed stock that you've already ran you're making an educated guess and then you're doing that guess with a few things and so then now you have a few different seed stocks from a few reversed females and then you test those out and then you can compare okay so that has the trade i want this one doesn't so then you move one into production and you hold on to the seeds that you can produce more of what you want, just like a hundred. And if you have that hundred, then you can make more of those ones and find more of something you like or cross it into something new. So you can't actually hold mom stock at all. You just have to hold seeds of the winners. And basically, you know, out of every plant, it, each one has to be uniquely marked and you have to like get the biggest seeds out of there and test those out uniquely, yeah. Wow, you, you answered the next question I was going to ask, which was like, technically, how do you breed autos? But I guess you just sort of did that. Do you know of any other ways? Because I, I can't remember who, but someone said there's like a chemical you can use that'll like stop the plant from flowering. And I was like, that's interesting. I hadn't heard of that. Do you know, know anything about that? Um, well, as far as breeding autos, like obviously you can have uh, regular autoflowers, um, but Mephisto doesn't really let out regular autos because then it's easy for you to produce a lot of seeds so i won one pack of white stomper from mephisto in an auction one time so when you're feminizing seeds you're using silver thiosulfate and that's a mixture of chemicals that are going to block the femininity from being expressed and your feminine plant is going to grow balls and those balls don't have a man gene in there. They don't have the chromosome to make a male. So all the seeds are going to be feminized. So this is a great process if you want to lock in a trait. However, if you read genetic you know, warnings after four to seven generations of feminizing, you can um, end up in a genetic dead end and have lots of hermaphrodism and problems so you kind of want to zip up your gene with feminization and then unzip it with a regular autoflower seed which is the work i've recently been doing after doing five generations of feminization now i hit it with male autoflowers 
Wow, that's so cool. And then is the plan then to work like sort of fresh feminized stock forward that's not in that bottleneck or do you want to work the male female stuff just out from there yeah exactly once you unzip it then you can zip it back up in a direction that you want and the direction that i'm going is to make full melt trichomes that fall off to make live rosin a hundred percent in the genome of the autoflowers so once right now it's like 60 percent you know, have the nice tacky wash look. 40% are going to be greasy still and are going to work better for live resin and BHO or butane extraction. Yeah, wow. And I guess while we're here, what are your thoughts on some of the other forms of concentrate? Like, I'm sure you don't hate them. Do you have like a hierarchy of like concentrates in terms of like maybe fresh frozens at the top and then other stuff? Or what's your thoughts? Well, you've got your BHO diamonds and you've got your live rosin. So those two things are premium extracts when done uh, with the genetics that they're supposed to. You can express flavors that you can never capture in rosin in live resin diamonds because butane can capture more terpenes in a way. Uh, In another way, a uh, really good rosin has a unique flavor and a unique high compared to the diamonds. So as long as they're done right and from the right genetics, it's an amazing experience. You've got your, you know, tiny trichomes on all your gelato flavors. If someone's going to grow that to an A+, like an apples and bananas, that makes amazing diamonds and the flavor comes through but you're not going to get that deep flavor if you try to wash that strain. But banana OG and, you know, strains like that, they're going to make the amazing banana flavor for rosin that new consumers love because that banana terpene is so smooth and candy-like. That's really interesting to hear. And uh, what's your thoughts on straight water hash? Because some of the heads, you know, they still regard really nice, you know, dry sieve or water hash to be in that premier tier. What are your thoughts on it? So I've been making full melt um, for a long time. I mean, since I've had my farm and moved into genetics, I've moved away from making my own full melt and all that. But before Fresh Frozen was invented, we were all about the full melt. That was the way to go. That was the best hash you could get uh, from, let's see, 2005 to 2014, maybe. Uh, So, you know, focusing on strains that worked with that process and made really big heads, made for a great experience. I've had glass blowers design me you know, glass rods and things like this before dabbing invented. So we had our own ways to like smoke it in a way. And yeah, it was amazing. Um, But since the rosin was invented and since squishing it, I mean, I've squished my own flower and rosin. It's amazing. Just like how uh, you have to decarb uh, some THC to make it work for edibles and this whole decarbing process. Um, I guess it goes back to your original question, maybe that I didn't get to. Um, You asked about pressurized rosin. So like there's the cold cure and you can whip it. But when you have a lot of cold cure and you're like, okay, we will try this. People realize that you could put that cold cure into a vacuum purge oven, which actually, you know, sucks out all the air. 
And it's what we used years ago when we would make butane shatter. Um, so it creates like about 90 degrees temperature and 180 moles of pressure, similar to, you know, out there in outer space or something like that. And it causes a nucleation and the terpene separation of the rosin. And this causes a texture change. And then you can load your rosin into pens. At the same time, you've caused the terpenes to change. And so they're easy to get into your brain. And it's a clearer, quicker high when you turn your rosin into rosin jam. There's like, that's the tech, rosin jam tech, or there's rosin diamond tech. But only certain strains are going to work for this process. There's certain finer terpenes that are completely antagonized if you try to make jam. Wow, so so variable. Before I forget, I want to quickly ask, you just described what sounds like making a really nice rosin that you said you know you might be able to get into a pen. I'm interested to know, like obviously the vape pens are here to stay, so to speak. There's always going to be a big sort of casual market that really likes them. Do you think they will get better over time or do you think they will be limited at a certain point just by sort of the design or the inputs? I said this at the beginning when vape carts were, you know, first invented that, that we needed a PhD thermodynamic guy in there to really figure this out. And we need some physics guys and they all need to talk together. And, you know, there's a bunch of corporations that are jumping on this and they're busting out pens so far all their failure rates are too high to you know put your valuable medicine in there so it kind of hurts when you know you got the failed hardware and your consumers like well shit you're like all right well here's another one you know so it's so wasteful it's like god damn it but there's some companies using hemp plastic and the pressure's on right now for that sort of thing so like they have enough money they've made enough money from selling us the bullshit b-grade carts and they're going to have a new line in the next 10 years that are going to be the smoothest ever experience. It's going to make it so that more people will dab. Absolutely. Incredible. And I mean, do you think in the long term, the overall market will move away from flowers and more towards concentrates? Because as you've alluded to, you know, like easy use, higher terpene sort of expressions, if like the inputs are really good, where do you think we're heading in general? Absolutely. It matches up with global scalability, uh, global shipping, medical analysis, medical efficacy. I mean, it's just the raw materials is weed, right? Right. It's like the real raw materials, really good weed. Make sure your weed is the best. So you have the best raw materials. I love that. I love that. I think people will kill me if I don't ask. So we better jump into it. Would you be able to give us a bit of an overview of what your process is specifically for making fresh frozen uh sure for like harvesting in terms of like from harvest to say when you've got it in a jar if you could just touch on some of the major dot points here you don't have to drill into super intense details but just generally yeah so it all starts with being in line with the biodynamic calendar we don't work on off days we work on flower days this has been scientifically illustrated you get higher yields from flower crops and the seed oils that come from flower seed crops if you harvest them on flower days so we're in line with the biodynamic calendar and we got a crew of lovely ladies that comes and harvest the plants every night 
the plants have to be cold to the touch. Obviously, if it's overcast, then, then it's okay too. But you can't harvest lettuce in the sun and then go sell it at the market. It'll melt into a pile of mush, right? Same principles. You got to disconnect the plant from the earth when it's cold to the touch, ideally at six in the morning, right? If you can motivate your crew, you cut down, that's when they have maximum terpene production from defending themselves from insects all night. So right at 6 a.m., you're going to have that high terpene production. As soon as the light hits, then your terpenes drop considerably on the plant. Every day that cycle happens. So you kind of, you know, get in there when you can and then get those plants into the freezer as fast as you can. And you can't put it all into one freezer all at a time because then it'll compost in the middle of itself because it's hot plant matter. So you got to bag up 500 to 1,000 grams at a time, put it on dry ice or in a lonely freezer, not next to other fresh frozen weed trying to get frozen and make a frozen block and then put it in the other freezer with the frozen weed. I mean, essentially, like, if there was someone listening who, like, grew up in a butchery, they would understand all the principles. And that's what I tell people who are trying to learn. I'm like, look at how you would treat a Wagyu cow in Japan. Look at how Native Americans break down a deer. There's a timing. There's a way to eviscerate an animal and get those vital nutrients and steaks and organs vacked, packed, sealed, and in a freezer to celebrate life later. And that's the same kind of principles. You got to be on it and you got a big leaf beforehand. So there's not too much backlog while you're trying to get it into the bags. You don't want a big leaf too much to shock the plant while it's alive. There's a balance there. Uh, Obviously you want to look with your microscope and see your trichomes and see where everything's at and, make your decisions. And when you're freezing, you write greasy or tacky to determine if it's going to work for what process. So many guys jump into it and think they can make, Oh, I'm going to make full melt live rosin. I froze all my weed. I'm like, okay. And so what did you grow? Like, Oh, I grew like blow pops. It's a gelato cross. Like, okay, bro. So you're going to see like 1% of your crop yield into hash. I don't know if that's really going to pay for anything, but you're welcome (laughs) to do it. Oh, so much to go into there. I want to quickly ask, what is the trike color you like to harvest at? 50% milky, 30% milky, um, depending on the weather, right? If it's 20% milky and it's like seven days of storm, let's go, (laughs) you know? Okay, cool. And is that because like it continues to mature for a little bit after that or...? Uh, because sometimes you, it's easy to underestimate how much labor is involved in the fresh frozen harvest. Just like it's easy to underestimate if you never killed an animal and then broken down all its parts into meat, how much work that is. Yeah, certainly. So take me back to the process. So we got the plants in the freezers. They're happy. Where do we go from there? Yeah. So now they're either labeled by strain, labeled by their date, labeled with a paint pen, If you use a marker in the freezer, it all rubs off and you don't know what's what. You got a bunch of frozen bricks of weed that you can guess. Uh, Then you got to get it to your extractor, right? So you've either got to buy dry ice and put it in totes or a a freezer that, you know, is frozen. And then if you're driving 30 minutes, you can just unplug a freezer, put it into your truck, obviously. Um, 
but it's yeah it's dangerous so if you're taking like a three-hour mission you got to have an open bed flat bed truck with a generator powering your freezers while you drive or you're buying a bunch of dry ice to load into something to keep it cold just like you know you don't want your meat to rot and once you get to your spot you're either going to bring stuff that they're going to crush up and load in for gassing for butane extraction or you're going to throw it into your cold room for your water extraction and obviously you want to work with an extractor who has you know good ice cubes good understanding of trichomes the cement mixer you know there's some people who do it by hand um there's a lot of options as far as that goes but there's a lot of details and so you really want to be on it with your extractor about like what your percentage is and how much you're getting back there's so many guys and there's only so much you can do what i do is i grow a bunch of the same thing and i give fresh frozen to say uh resin ranch full flavor and gold country so now they all know they have the same frozen weed from me. So I've created like a little, little mini competition. Who's going to yield the most? Who's going to make the terpiest out of all the same material? And you see a huge variance, a huge variance. Interesting. Uh, before we jump into those collabs, because I noticed them and they look cool. I, I've noticed that uh, like, it seems like you're one of the guys who... I, I might be going out on a limb here, but it, it seems like you recognize the limits of where you want to spread yourself too thin. And you're like, I, I'm not the guy who does the extraction because you need to be really knowledgeable in that area. I'm sure you've got a lot of overlapping knowledge, but is that largely how you see it? Where you're like, I can't do everything. It would just be spreading myself too thin. I need to have like a sort of demarcation of where my skill set is going to finish and I'm going to focus on this. Is that how you view it or have I just confused it a bit? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. I mean, I got into hash before anyone was in hash. So in 2001, right, I got kilos of hash that I, you know, help people out in college with in a medical setting under Prop 215. And this hash was from soldiers who were coming back from Afghanistan. And this shit was pressed with a gold seal, probably five, 10% opium in there. You know, the, the, these kind of full melts from the international market uh, were the first hashes. And everyone was like, wow, this is amazing. But most people didn't know what it was, didn't know what it was about. So I've always been interested in resin production and why cultures got into it and how long they, the history of all that. And finally, when rosin was came around and I'd already been making full melt and I knew the amount of labor it takes to produce weed. I've worked on many farms and seen many failures go down. So I'm in an educated position to make a decision for myself about how I can change the cannabis industry space for the better. And it's by focusing in my lane on what I uniquely know. And if I spread myself too thin, like you said, oh, I'm going to wash it and I'm going to extract it. I'm going to do all this stuff you know, then you can't focus on the genetics, right? And I'd love to get to a point where I can just have more cuts and more genetics so that I can just work with that and move actually out of resin production itself and into just looking at resin production and choosing the best genetics for that process 100% of the time. 
Beautiful. Very admirable. A man honing his craft. I like that. And just to jump back to what you referenced before, uh, you know, you, you work with these various extractors and I noticed you had this, what I thought was a really impressive little collab box you put together with uh, Gold Country Resin. And what I really found interesting about it was each of those uh, six different offerings in that box was like a different sort of terpene dominate concentrate. So you're really giving people all the base colors to see what see what like the primary colors are basically. I wanted to know what inspired you to do this because it's such a neat idea. And um, yeah, what was the thinking behind that? So... I had the first test at SC Labs um, with a rare terpene long ago. Uh, my friend Alec, he was one of the guys who started that. I went to college with him at UC Santa Cruz. So when I first got into the ruderalis plants and I had my own ruderalis nugs, I obviously brought it to SC Labs and I was like, wow, you can do a terpene test? Wow. And they called me back and they were like, we've never seen this terpene before at a 3% level. This is amazing. What kind of flower is this? And getting that feedback really did inspire me and send me on the journey I am today. Like just going on like, cause I was like, oh shit, this is a discovery. And there's a lot of rare kind of things out there, right? And then, like you said at the beginning, how do we get more people excited about cannabis? Well, we're at this point where because the market and the government don't get along, it's harder for the consumer to understand what's going on. And so because the white market people are losing money and the dispensaries are losing money and the government is making it harder for those people, the effect is the consumers are confused about one of the largest growing markets with so many products being invented daily, right? And so it's very confusing for someone to go into a store and see something called live resin and it's super harsh and it's made from trim. There's no regulations in California. And so they use like CRC clays and filters and then blast a bunch of trim and then call that live resin at the store. And so then people have like these bad experiences, right? And then the test, you know, the test on the side, it's like 90% THC with a bunch of other numbers and it's super like confusing, like, okay, well, uh, I guess I'll have the 90% instead of the 88%. Uh, yeah. But consumers are just getting, you know, literally confused by that information because the um, government doesn't require a terpene test. So what I did is I terpene tested a bunch of black market rosins that I felt like people wouldn't really understand like if they just put their nose over it. I don't know. But if I got the terpene test and showed how all these things were different and how rosin can, you know, bring you up, help with workouts, help with sex, help with cooking, help with appetite, help with all these random things, according to the terpenes, then people could start seeing, oh, oh, the mercine that works for me when I get home from work. Okay. Oh yeah. That's what's in papaya. Okay. So I like papaya because it has alpha pinene. Oh, okay. And so then people can start making these decisions for themselves as opposed to constantly be con being confused about THC percentages, which have little to do with the high or how the high affects you. What a great answer. And uh, just out of curiosity, do you think that these really single dominant 
terpene profiles are sort of more interesting from your point of view or do you think like a really mixed variable one can be equally as interesting? So, yeah, that's kind of the world that I want people to explore, right? And that's kind of the world that we want to create to create the understanding of the terroir. We have to create this language where people understand that like the first three terpenes are going to very much dictate the effects. And so I got those first four on there. And yeah, most people were very surprised. Even Gold Country himself, he was like, wow, I can't believe so many rosins are just high in limonene. I thought that GMO and papaya were so different, but they're both have limonene as the dominant terpene, but the secondary terpene is different in both of them. So it kind of teaches people about like their nose and what our sense of smell is. And I feel like that's really important in this world is our sense of smell is our sense of instinct. It's connected to our memory. There's a lot of things trying to disconnect us from our sense of smell and having this terpene kit allowed people to do their own self research, right? A bio essay, like the medical term for how you felt when you took your dab, you know? Like, and then people can actually have a language like, oh, okay, well, they can go into the club and say, hey, so I got this research kit and this one with myrcene and beta caryophylline in equal amounts really actually worked the best out of all of them. Do you have anything like that? And that's the kind of nuanced question that will put pressure on the bud tenders to put pressure on the growers to get the terpene test. And some growers and rosin manufacturers are already doing this. Uh, one company out of Oregon would put a little terpene chart in there. So I was really impressed with that, with each gram. Yeah. But not much expl explanation about that effect. So that's where we, ne we need to flesh everything out. Yeah, brilliant. Hopefully it becomes a more mainstay of the labeling and... Uh you can get a better idea of what's going on under the hood. But you, you mentioned it twice and it's sort of been on my mind. Why do you think papaya is getting such a big resurgence at the moment? So first of all, uh, the drop in the market value of dried flour is going to change everything. Um, uh, that's going to push people to look for cuts that work for hash. And papaya has an amazing flavor and it always hits above four or 5% if you get the good papaya cut. And so you're going to get, you know, your economic value out of that and you're going to get your rosin yield so that your washer gets his percentage. And globally speaking, most people haven't had a papaya, you know, like it's still exotic as fuck. So when you tell people, oh, hey, like I remember saying, oh, I've got papaya. And, uh, you know, after saying it to, However many people who come up to my booth, one person's like, what's a papaya? And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, because papaya is so exotic. Some people have just had like the fruits that they know of. And so it's just it's just going to keep spreading papaya. It, and oh, and personally, I feel that the high is like, you know, like similar. It's got a little bit more relaxation on the muscles, but it's got a lot of mind engagement and will keep you going in the day and help with sore muscles. Yeah. Perfect. So we've been talking a bit about the papaya strain and I wanted to ask you about your durian strain. My buddy Ozgrown Exotics, shout out, he he wants a durian strain. He's got his heart set on it. So tell me about yours. What's it like? 
All right, so the durian project is hitting onion fritter into the papaya. So uh, we have like the shallot sashimi from tea Beasel, and that's a good rosin strain that gives it a savory uh, terp profile. So if you hit that with papaya, we think that within that seed stock that we'll find like the true durian expression. Yeah. Beautiful. So you reckon you're just a little more hunting and you'll be there? Yeah, that's the goal right now is we're trying to find uh, the durian and passion fruit. The passion fruit project is forbidden fruit, legendary OG hit with Bodhi's lemon hash plant version two. And the durian project is the uh shallot sashimi and and papaya crossed together yeah my friend you just made my day that you're doing a passion fruit project half the time when i talk to people about passion fruit they they don't they're like what you said earlier it's an exotic fruit some people aren't like they're not familiar with it and whatnot but i've got a passion fruit line i'm working on we need to trade seeds my friend my one is uh triangle pupil so like tk by pakistani star pupil by Raspberry Mama, which is like a pink champagne sort of thing, if you remember that from back in the day. Ooh, I love pink champagne. Yeah, right? So, perfect. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to send you some seeds because, yeah, I too have long been looking for a passion fruit strain and sometimes you get close, but you're not quite there and it would be really neat to find one. Yeah, I was just talking today with uh, the village guys uh, who found like the Amarello. That's what they're saying is they're some phenos within the Amarello are expressing passion fruit, some of them more pineapple. So I haven't been able to find the Amarillo cut. I'm doing my breeding project here, starting hopefully before the ego clash. Um, we've got lots of winners lined up from this year that I've made into clones. And yeah, we're going to do the honey bananas since it's my favorite rosin and it won the ego clash. We're reversing the honey bananas into as many winning cuts as I can find. Ideally, if I can do the honey bananas into Amarillo, uh, I think we'll find something there. I have the sun, uh, Satsuma Sherbert uh, and the Purple Rain, which is a Masonic's Trop Wilson Fino Hunted, and the Tropical Drank, which is a Hindu, pineapple Hindu Skittle crossed into orange Skittle. I love it. So many avenues to dive down. Before we jump off the topic, we've been talking about some Australian stuff. I was interested to know, what's your experience with the uh, Australian genetics? Yeah, I had one worker uh, did come back from Australia. She met an Aboriginal guy and he gave her seeds and I crossed that onto like gelato and ancient OG and a few others to make oscillato and yeah <laughs> right i was gonna ask you so i wanted to ask you specifically about that because you you gave me a pack of the oscillato i brought it back to australia oh um and i think my buddy grew it out on his farm in the far northern rivers like near that real hot spot of australia like that nimbin sort of area and um yeah i wanted to ask you do you, do you remember much about that australian line you used yeah it was amazing absolutely yeah, it had super cool structure, super vigorous growth, and, uh, you know, drought resistance. 
what did it look like? Because I imagine it might be similar to what I was talking about. Because they're, they're phenomenal plants outdoors, but it's just the effect's not really my thing. It had the structure of, yeah, kind of old school White Widow. Um, you know, not anything like we have here, that's for sure. It wasn't round at all, you know, like no, no round big buds ever. Small little bracts, yeah. Yeah, wow, interesting. That's um, that's very interesting to hear. I, I'm trying to get my hands on uh, a line in Australia called Zoid Fuel, which was made by these guys back in the day. They're on the forum. They were called um, the Wizards of Oz. But I guess the interesting thing about this line is it's the only really notable line where there's any info on it where it was bred from 100% non-European or American stock, and it's just made from three land races. It's made from a Chinese Yuan, uh, a PNG Gold, and like an Australian sort of, you know, heirloom sativa sort of thing. And um, it looks like a real modern strain. Like it's one of those sort of like, I think Neville spoke about it once, where he was like, I could never do something like that, like spin together a couple of land races to make something that looks like modern sort of stuff but yeah there's this line zoid fuel it's meant to be super racy from the png gold high like just real anxiety inducing and so i'm like give me more of that and um yeah i'm trying to get my hands on it if i ever do i'll be sure to get you some because i reckon it'd be right up your alley as well oh absolutely um yeah speaking of land races we've got a 16 footer that just made it through three rainstorms completely unharmed zero mold uh I uh, had my mother, she was going to Tanzania and I was like, oh, I want the seeds. You know, if you meet anyone, give me the seeds. And she met these tribal people who gave her real wild Tanzanian seeds. And I found a male that, you know, dropped pollen on like November 10th. You know, I was like, oh, it opened up then. And so I had my farm manager at the time had gone over to yoga school in Southern India to Karnataka and she got wild weed that was amazingly purple. She picked the purplest, you know, and brought it back. The seeds just real land race from India. And so I made a Tanzanian India cross and that's, that's what's growing right now. Yeah. It'll be done by Thanksgiving. Man, that's incredible. Are you getting any interesting sniffs off it yet? Yes. Honestly, I forgot like while well, I grew those and they were just getting so big and had zero smell. And now, wow, they are amazing. They smell nothing like anything in my garden, nothing even close. And I've done this before, you know, everyone knows you're not going to get a lot of biomass or bud off of it. It's going to be low yielding. But from experience, you put 20, 30% of that biomass in with something regular and then make your live resin diamonds. A hundred percent of the consumers notice they're like this land race terp. It's amazing. I've never felt anything like this. So it's worth it. Wow. That's so interesting. You remind me of a, like a, a talking point Bodhi mentioned to me years ago, which is like, just like not, not restricted to one specific area, but in general, the whole art of blending is not really been explored that much in cannabis, whether we're talking about like blending strains or blending like cannabis with other plants 
What's your thoughts on blending? Do you think it's got a spot? Do you think it's the future? So I've been dealing with blending from the beginning since I've been fresh freezing. And so there's a minimum batch size for your diamonds, 6,000 grams. And then there's your minimum batch size for water hash, sometimes 20,000 grams. So you've got to think about what's going to work because I have blended stuff and then I tried it and I was like, ooh, dang it. I totally blended that one. And one of the terpenes is now completely overpowered. And you remember those mistakes because you kind of know intuitively like how much people would have been impressed if that had been pulled off. And then you're like, people will never know. Oh man, that's a shame. Yeah. So there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. And you basically want to do like your cakey strains with like a little bit of lemon, right? And you don't want to mix super fruity, unique strains. Like you wouldn't want to mix apples and a papaya. So you wouldn't, if, if I had apple fritter and papaya, I would mix them both rather with like a, a Cushman's or something instead of together, because then they would antagonize each other's flavors. A lot of times they do. do dough is a good background for any of the fruity ones. Wow. See, uh, it, just even listening to this makes me realize like I don't have anything meaningful to say because I've got no idea about this, right? It's such a novel field. Uh, yeah. I mean, last year at the Ego Clash, a blend won. So now that's kind of like standard where people are like putting it on the label like, okay, uh, this is my new flavor. You know, it's 30% this, 30% that, and 30% this, you know. So it's telling you that they're putting three flavors together that they think will work good together. People have been blending rainbow belts and dosi dough a lot and the moonbow blending that into pure rainbow belts. So it's like more moonbow-ish. Yeah. Wow, interesting stuff. And I guess the idea of blending in general, A, you know, it's been proven as a, an effective concept in other industries like, you know, wine and spirits, but but also it lends itself, as you were saying earlier, to the scale up of massive ag and being able to acquire a bunch of concentrates and blend them together to make your Jack Daniels number seven, so to speak. Yes. Now that is the ultimate goal, right? The One Rosin Corporation, right? All small farmers were in the One Rosin Corporation. We all have our name as one legally, so none of us can be taxed and we can produce the best rosin because we all have so much of everything that we can do huge terpene analysis and then always make the most potent of each of the thing the same time but the problem is is there's a huge variance in terpene expression grow to grow because of the seasonal change of temperatures even within indoor the outside affects that and the soil and the grow technique and the water ph and so you're seeing a still a wide variety of that sort of thing. And I think the nutrient companies working with the breeders is going to change that. So just to bring it back to the last question, you mentioned working with Masonic and I saw that you'd done some collabs with Big Mace. Tell me a little bit about that and um, what sort of things we can expect from those seeds. Yeah, so this year... Um, we ended up with lots of seed stock from last year's biodynamic project where we tried to, you know, torture the hell out of all the males and, you know, put them next to russet mite infected plants and the whole nine yards and break them in half, rip off their balls, time uh, the days it takes for the balls to regenerate. We start with the hundred males 
And so last year, the Wilson's Kate Crasher uh, just had an amazing vigor, no matter what you did. Ripped it down, broke it in half. It still was growing, just like normal. So I had already had experience with the uh, females making good rosin. And I had my nice fruity, you know, lemon fat mans that I'm wanting to increase their rosin yield and hold on to that lemon terp. So I figured the Wilson Cake Crasher is a good project. And with the whole wedding crasher Wilson name, you know, and then the lemon fat man, we figured of calling it like Owen Wilson or just Owen after that movie. Right. So basically we'll have the different costumes that Owen has played throughout his like Hollywood career as the different pheno hunts, as we go through the different frozen plants of this seed variety. So people will get to try uh, sour Owen, offensive Owen, uh, lemon Owen, you know? Yeah. And um, you know, I obviously, uh, I'm pretty um, undogmatic as far as like seed guys go. Like I go to places where I trade seeds. I go to the seed swaggle. I trade, se I'm, I'm down, you know, I've been going to Emerald cup for a long time and yeah, Masonic was just always down to trade. And when it came time to like put seeds in the earth, I, I must've grown 30 breeders my first year here on the farm in 2015. And, you know, you just freeze them and then you look at the numbers, right? Like you look at who survived, who just fell over and all the bugs ate you up. And yeah, Masonic's always hit above 4% for our live rosin process, always. And even ones that, you know, didn't look that healthy still made good rosin. So uh, like other plants, you know, they would look uh, pretty good and then give us 2%. So eliminated those and... Yeah, you know, so we need someone who's passionate and excited about keeping the flavors going. So pass the test and he's a nice guy. So there you go. That's all the information I need. I mean, I've seen so many people say that their seeds are so fancy and charge so much for them and they look good too. And then they just don't perform. So proofs in the pudding, you know, I think everyone needs more science in their life and less dogma. I love that. Yeah, definitely. Proof's in the pudding. I've been trying to factor that more into my explanation of things. But I'd love to know. I feel like that trop flavor is on, like, oranges in general, I think, are coming back into focus. I think they died off for a bit. Now they're coming back. I'd love to know because I think you would have your finger on the pulse more than most anyone. What flavor do you think is going to be the next big thing to hit the scene? And what do you think in general of the scene at the moment? Well, let's see. I mean, you know how Bloom Seed Co., you know, you're familiar with them? Yep. So I got their drop, you know, of the uh, strawberry guava Tropicana cookies. Uh, and their pink marshmallow across the strawberry guava. But as far as, um, yeah, Trop cookies, man. I had this indoor trop cookies from heads that roll who won the ego clash the last few years. Uh, I've never seen pink rosin until now. It was bright pink. I, I'm telling you, I've never seen anything like this. They pressed it at such a low temp to preserve some of the purple anthocyanins 
And so it made this pink rosin. And my God, the high was the strongest, most effective for like athletic performance. Like I hit this before the skate park and I had the best skate of my life. And then I put away that gram and would only hit it right before I was going to the skate park forever after. So I'm going to be growing the Trop Cookie Crosses this uh, 2023 here. That's beautiful to hear. And you just reminded me, I remember that last video you posted of you shredding it up at the skate park. Like it made my day to just see someone crushing it on the blades. How long have you been doing it for? Let's see. I started at 14. Yeah. So well, that's a long time. Yeah. More than 25 years. Yeah, I can still go higher in the air than all the skateboarders or scooters. Hey, I'm strapped in. I can do flips. I'll be 40 in January. I don't know many 40-year-olds who don't have any gray hair and still do flips at the skate park. So I think there's something to me giving up smoking weed and shifting my whole life to the future of dabs and fresh frozen. And if I can be that example... Uh, I am right. Like I am the living example. If you're falling apart because you switch to hundred percent dabs, no one's going to follow you down that road. Mm, wow. I, I, but before I forget, I got to encourage everyone to go to your page. Look at that video. It's, it's incredible. But to follow up on what you just said, that's interesting. So, so yeah, so you're no flower, you're just dabs. Are you like low tempo only? Is there any other components to sort of this lifestyle you adhere to? Yeah, seven years, uh, low temp dabs, um, some, you know, vape pens, no desolate, you know, nothing weird. Uh, only stuff from my farm or from my friend's farms. Um, yeah, I would say everyone, man, uh, woman, especially if you're in your 30s, please get a testosterone test, get a hormone test, figure out where you're at. And if you need to change your diet because you're too dogmatic, Maybe it's time and uh, listen to science because that's what helped me. I had insomnia, I had all sorts of issues. Now I run my own business with five employees. We have seeds going to all over the world, Peru, Austria recently. You know, like it takes health to make a healthy, successful business. It takes a lot within yourself. I see a lot of people get successful and then the next year just falls apart because they can't maintain. So you have to invest always with yourself. I've eaten a lot of my investments, you know, I've made money and then I'll just eat really good food. Hey, and get really healthy. And then you can do a lot more. That is some incredibly sage advice, which I would urge everyone to take on board for sure. It, it definitely is an investment in yourself that's worth doing. I wanted to ask quickly, if you had theoretically unlimited resources or maybe like you're even a bit in the future where, you, you know, there's like a little more technology than what currently exists, what do you think will be the absolute ultimate way to extract cannabis resin in a sense? Because you got me thinking, you know, with the, the pink rosin you spoke about, it's like, okay, that's like the next level up. They've done like a bit of a game changer there. So what do you think theoretically will be like the ultimate you can foresee? So if you talk to some scientists and some extraction artists, they say the ultimate thing would be like, like a cold tube, like a cold trap, 
like without water, without anything, just a conveyor belt and a tube. And by the time the weed, the product gets to the end, it's gone through pure sublimination. So if you could sublimely separate those THC parts, it would be, you know, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars and engineers. But yes, you could extract THC through sublimination, through the process of the temperature changing itself rapidly. Wow. And so what it would, it would essentially go from being in the trichome to just turning into gas and then collecting it somewhere. I mean, if you could get it to absolute zero super quick, then everything might just fall apart. If it was just on a conveyor belt with a 90 U micron screen underneath Yeah. with nanotechnology, you know, to separate all the little bits to capture the bits before that part. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. It is, it is cool to think, yeah, what's what's possible? But there you go. Food for thought. I'm really interested to hear that. To take us back to just a question before when you were talking about growing the various breeders outdoor, I would love to ask, who are some breeders who you've generally been impressed by their work? Well, obviously, third gen, Brandon. Uh, all his amazing Skittles uh, stuff is, you know, super time tested from his farm. So it has that genetic work. Um, one of the guys who's moved into the consulting space, Dragon with Matches, always had outstanding genetics. Um, Bodie's your staple guy. Now he's going to be mainstream because of his burner deal, which I think is good. Yeah. He needs to get paid. He's done so much work. I mean, for so long, you know. Uh, well, there's uh, uh, Bloom Seed Co. is just killing it because they were breeding for full melt before rosin. That's the thing. They were just making dank full melt seeds. And then so they have a head start on a lot of people right now. Um, Bloom Seed Co. just took, you know, the smoking jacket with Cannabis Chris's extraction and growing skills. Um, they found like a pineapple empanada fino. <laughs> very specific <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i mean i've been putting seeds in the earth and seeing you know who does well like for so long i mean i was able to give that oscillato to jiga because he came to the ego clash one year so hopefully cookies realizes that you know they should start a tribal fund for aborigines and grow that strain out and they can make a bunch of PR and money. <laughs> right. Definitely, definitely. Well, I wanted to quickly ask because you, you referenced Brandon there and in, in past questions you referenced the Ego Clash. What, what's your thoughts on the current state of the cups? Because I've noticed like more and more people seem to be more excited for these smaller, more organic-based events like the Ego Clash. And the general trend is that things like the Emerald Cup sort of feel like they're dying off. What's your analysis of the state of the industry in that respect? You're absolutely correct. It was heartbreaking to see because I've had fun with you there. I've given you a mind-blowing dab that changed your mind, right? Like, that's why I went to Emerald Cup. That's why it existed. But that shit is gone. That shit has changed. And that shit is no more. Last year was the ultimate slap in the face of, like, Let's allow a huge beer garden from the biggest corporate beer thing we can think of. And let's push all the small farmers into one area so no one can actually see how cool they are spread out. And 
let's harass them with their displays because they're showing people weed that they would smell in a jar and then they could buy in a bag. That's it. Let's, let's harass them. So like the fucking Bureau of Cannabis Control came out there all Karen, like, like super Karens, like, let's stop this. <gasps> are these guys trading hash or are you selling it? We're going to have to confiscate this. And it was like so different than all the years before. And you could tell like they didn't even know what they were doing. And it was like this whole, you know, social media blitz with the Humboldt local and got a shot of them being all fucking shady and harassing everyone. Like, we're just people, dude. We're just you're the state. You're supposed to help us. What are you talking about? Like, get the fuck out of here, dude. Like, we are good people and we make seeds. We're not the cartel you're looking for. (laughs) How are they producing all this pounds? And you're here at the Emerald Cup right like come on yeah so the whole thing fell apart and it just went corporate and there was so much douchery and so much trickery and like you could go up to like a booth and be like oh like hey what wh- could i see the weed and they're like no like you can't smell the hash you can't smell the weed like uh like and like some booths would be like okay fuck it we're gonna break the rule here you can like smell the weed but you can't hold it or you can't like see it up close like jesus christ dude do you know how to do business or do you just like and then like all the free giveaways couldn't give away something free so it had like this ridiculous penny jar so it's like one penny jar is filled with pennies and another one's filled with like nothing and so you take one penny and put it in the other jar and so they're like no here's a free joint so you have to pay like all these wastes of time, bureaucracy, like absolutely horrible. These people from Sacramento who made up these laws have never taken the time to farm anything in their fucking lives. I wish they would. I wish that the governor had made it so that agronomists and um, like people with degrees in universities within our system would hire people who knew about plants to work for the Bureau of Cannabis Control. Instead, they hired people who knew nothing about anything. And so now we're left with this space of unelected officials, you know, essentially stopping the largest global cannabis market in the world. (laughs) What a uh, apt analysis. I guess it's fair to say you won't be going to the Emerald Cup this year. No, we're going to do the Ego Clash. We're going to serve waffles at the Ego Clash. And then we're going to go to T. Beasel's birthday for the next day and serve waffles again. <laughs> Beautiful, man. I was thinking of going to the Emerald Cup, but I was like, I can't bring myself to buy a ticket. Like, even the scene has changed. Like, last year, I even wanted to see the headliner. And this year, the headliner is like E-40 and all these gangster rappers who aren't that good. So the whole thing is, yeah gone down to i mean i'd love to hear in general your analysis and sort of thoughts on the current state of the legislation i mean a lot of people feel like small farmers are perpetually being pushed out of the industry it's it's hard to have a small scale operation where do you see the need for change in the laws what would you like to see changed Yeah, as I've said before, you know, fucking worldwide weed blockchain analysis of the terpenes to market the information, the genetic analysis to show the terroir, to show the pharmaceutical industries. And then, boom, I can sell my specific thing to Israel. If they want to research it, I can sell it to some sick person in Germany. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Because there's a lab here. I should be able to just bring them the pound. They can process it. Give me the magic stamp. 
give it to an exportation business that deals with the state to interstate to intercountry commerce. And boom, there you go. Everyone gets paid and small farming continues. There needs to be stricter regulations because like what I said before, the, there's no agronomists, there's no people who are botanists who are working within the law. So they're actually allowing for all this poison to like come out where people are feeding and spraying too late. And a lot of the pesticides that are allowed on the white market will make for a shitty experience for the consumer in the end run. And if they were prohibited, it would make it harder to grow cannabis at scale and thus less people would enter the market or fail miserably. So it's this whole thing where it's like the ethics of organics can protect the small craft farmer because doing organics at scale will never compete because it always goes crazy and falls down on its face because that's not what it's meant to be. It's not meant to be scalable. Out of curiosity, what do you think is the upper limit that an organic facility could operate at if someone was like, you know, oh, I'm happy to accept your advice, you c- it can't scale infinitely, but where? what do you think is the upper limit? Because I've been having discussions with friends about everyone wants to call themselves craft, but it's like if you've got a certain, you know, if you've got a, a 10 acre farm, is that craft? If you've got a hundred acre, you know what I mean? Like where does craft end, I guess? And what's the upper limit for organic indoor in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, the whole craft thing and small batch and nano batch and all these discussions are, you know, they're great because that's what we need. We need to define this kind of undefinable thing that's going to help perpetuate small craft farmers to thrive and help those who don't want to stay that transition into something that will thrive, that won't compete with them, right? So... I would love it if I saw like a, you know, a five acre cap, right? And like, yeah, if you've ever seen five acres of production, like it doesn't look anything small or craft. I mean, I've seen 3.5 acres that looks insane. Like a wall to wall, 3.5 acres takes a hundred people. So like how many employees do you have to manage? Like when is it small craft? I feel like once you go above like, like, if you get to like 20 people to like run the farm, that's not a small craft farm. You're having team meetings. You've got multiple employees. You've got multiple shift managers. You know what I mean? Like it's big. That's bigger. It's hard to, to, yeah, it's hard to like, if like 10 people can like manage all that and then have a crew come in and harvest then fuck more power to them. Right. But yeah, the small craft farmer will always be defined because that's what it is. Like you can just literally test all the stuff and see that anything big does not make the good terpenes. Anything fed all the salts doesn't have all the fancy terpenes. So I think it's more about the market understanding what it needs and thus demanding that. And then the mar- all the people who produce will have to flex to that or realize that they can't flex to that and try something else instead of competing with us. We haven't spoke about it much yet, but obviously, you know, you're an organic biodynamic guy. Tell me, what's the difference between like synthetic or salt-based concentrates? What's the thing you notice is the difference? So my friend uh, started Growth Science Nutrients. They have an organic line and a uh, conventional line or synthetic line. 
And yeah, I ran my auto flowers. Um, I had the opportunity to run the same strain, completely organic and completely synthetic, freeze the material, label it, extract it. And the synthetic material made larger diamonds, less terpenes, and considerably less yield. 1.5% out of the total biomass weight. However, the biomass growth was at least 40 to 30% more. So the organics grew smaller, had smaller flowering sites, extremely like 3.5 and 4% yield versus a 1.5% yield on your fresh frozen and smaller diamonds, more terpenes. Interesting, interesting. I mean, a lot of people would sort of say that that's, that's very much in line with sort of the conventional things we hear in terms of organics, you know, maybe yields a little less, but higher quality, you know? Definitely. And I wanted to ask you, because you're so involved in the, the sort of concentrates realm, does that spill over for you into the edibles realm? Absolutely. Yeah, we've been making, you know, chocolates and gummies and taffies. I've been making chocolates for what, 20 years now. So I've always made edibles and love the infusion and the difference between the edible high and the dabbing or smoking high. That's incredible. I want to know what's your go-to edible. I've just recently gained a, a better appreciation for them. So I'd love to hear what's your favorite. Uh, so when you make like, you know, rosin, you get like the 45 U is like the food grade you know, and then like there's the 90U, which is like the like dabbing grade and like 120 is like still dabbing grade. So there's a few grades. Right. But when you make rosin, you have some like food grade where it could, you know, collect some particulates or some plant matter and stuff like that. But mostly the process is down where it doesn't have anything like that. And it's still a smooth smoke. It's just not, you know, as potent. Right. So that's what we would use for our edibles and uh, the gold country collab we did came out really good so we like send you know all this 40u rosin down to these master bakers in la uh honey and uh honey chocolates company and the um starfire edibles people and then they you know use half of the rosin for their edibles and then they make a bunch of edibles with the other half with us and then send it packaged back so then Essentially, we have all these like gourmet donuts and vegan donuts and handmade marshmallows and handmade white pumpkin, pumpkin spice chocolates, all with rosin. And they'll send back 15 flavors of chocolates, 17 flavors of donuts. <laughs> wow. What a, what a plethora. Do you find that um, you get different effects based on the strain input or by the point where you're at like a donut it's it's more of a homogenous sort of feeling so this is a big discussion right now with all the edible makers and all the rosin guys big time i'm really glad you asked this because i have a particular perspective so the rumor is it's not confirmed is that West Coast Alchemy to achieve their wet look on 100% of their 90U, not all cultivars will, you know, release a 90U that looks wet, uh, is that they do a terpene separation on the 40U. And some cultivars produce amazing terpenes that are caught in the 40U bag when you're making live rosin and making bubble hash. 
And so basically you can put the 40U and squish it for like six hours at super low temp and put it at an angle and you'll, you'll separate all the terps will drip out into a jar and the THCA will be left. And you can take those terpenes and then add it to your 90U. And now your 90U looks super wet and glistens. And so basically most cooking processes are going to destroy your volatile terpenes. So all these strain specific terpene, we put the rosin in there. I'm like, nah, like I've made gummies. Okay. I've made them with all this and I know about terpenes and volatilization. So when you're boiling that sugar mixture to make your gummies, all the terpenes are gone. They're gone. So it doesn't make any sense for the rosin makers to do it other than that it's extra work. So it's lazy. So it's like you have a bunch of 40U, just give it to the edible maker and then give me some edibles back. And I can call it the strain that it is. But really, they should be separating the terpenes so that people can dab that and then giving the edible makers pure decarbed THCA. Interesting, interesting. And I guess maybe the underlying question behind the last question was, do you think that the terpenes, for the most part, are what dictates the effect? Like, do you think if you stripped it all away and you've just got the THC percent there, maybe a few minor cannabinoids, that it's all going to seem quite generic? Absolutely. Brilliant. I love it. I love it. Okay. So, I wanted to ask you, I'm surprised I haven't asked already, what's the most unique terps you've ever come across? So the unique terpene that I found um, was when my mom was over in Amsterdam getting me some ruderalis seeds and she actually got me unfeminized ruderalis on accident, some CBD one-to-one ruderalis seeds. And we bred that into Mephisto's and I brought that to the lab and they found uh, this terpene called Borneol as the dominant terpene. And they had never found this before. And they had just had a meta data scientist plot all 15,000 successful terpene tests that they have done on cannabis into a chart to show them. And they showed me how almost 80% is mercine dominant. And then there's some piney ones and some jack ones and a few others. And how mine was like, they've never seen Borneol at 3.3% as the dominant terpene. It always been a super, super small amount, 0.0001 or 01 or in other cannabis. So that really sent me on my whole thing. Uh, recently, I've seen lab results for the cranberry Skittles cross. And it's got some high amounts of eucalyptol, which I'm absolutely in love with this flavor of like, I feel like that's a good Australia kind of thing, right? If we can get the cranberry Z there, grow it under eucalyptus, will it express more eucalyptol? I think so. So <laughs> I love it. That's the mad scientist experiments. We got to, we got to make them happen. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I'd love to hear like what, uh, what's your advice for someone who wants to get into breeding some autos? Is there anything you wish you could tell yourself looking back with what you know now? Always save 10 seeds of everything that you grow so that if you grow everything out and you find a winner and your pollination is not successful, you haven't lost that line forever. Um, yeah, and then always unzip and zip. So 
feminize one year and then unfeminize the next year and know what to look for in males and time your males, stress your males, look up close at the trichomes of your males and keep track of everything. That's the hardest part. Yeah. Cause if you have seeds that don't get labeled, they're like, ah, <laughs> it's a lot to keep track of. That's great advice. I'd love to follow up. What's your characteristics for picking an auto male? Because you just mentioned some of them have resin. Like, do you do you put a lot of uh, weight or emphasis on that in terms of that smell being a trait it passes on, or is it more complex? So I'm looking at branching. I'm looking at how many ball sacs and how close together the ball sacs are growing, and the internodal and the vigor. And when you're feminizing, you know, oftentimes if you know the seed is a winner and you like know it's from an established breeder who's won awards and you spend a bunch of money on like five fucking seeds and you want to make more, basically you just want to look for the first one that expresses sexuality. The first one that expresses that hair, you fucking take that separately and you spray that down and start reversing her. That's the secret. Wow, yeah, that makes sense. I like that a lot. Okay, so just so I understand it, basically all auto strains more or less like are are exactly what you've described where like you have to just test out the progeny and you don't really get to know because the parents get burnt up in the process. Yes, and breeding long season into autoflowers is five generation, four generation process because it's a recessive trait. So like I hit something, you know, male with an autoflower and only 10%, maybe 5% will be autoflower out of that seed stock, the first F1 generation. And then would you just F2 them for a bunch more generations until you got close to 100% or how would you go from that F1 cross to the point of being like, hey, I've now got gelato auto? So basically you would have to start out with some autoflower that you had, right? And then hit it with something that you wanted. And that first generation of those seeds, you basically would kill off 90% of the seed stock because you can tell that it's not going to autoflower within the timing, right? So you're just like casting hella seeds being like, oh, this is going long, kill it, you know? So one out of 10 is going to like go quick, right? And so then you either have your feminized pollen ready to paint on or you're feminizing something actively so that it times up with that release. So the ovum and everything is ready so you can make some seeds. But it's not easy. That's why feminized autoflowers are expensive. I mean, I've done successful runs three times in a row and then I've failed three times in a row afterwards. And each time a unique thing happened that stopped me. And it was so unique that it, I couldn't, you know, perceive that it was going to happen. Wow. Okay. And, and do you think by four or five generations, you could have pretty reasonable certainty that when you do the fem reversal to sort of make the seeds you plan to sell, that they're all going to be auto four or five generations? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I do, you know, 1000 seed, 2000 seed tests before I release them. So that there's no herms and no autos, absolutely. That's brilliant. And what do you think in general is going to be the future of autos? Because there's obviously this ongoing discussion about like, is it ever going to be as good as a photo? 
Like, what's your thoughts? Do you think we're almost there? And what do you foresee them doing primarily in the future as like a, a tool? So I had this uh, responded to this post, Dungeon Vault Genetics, who I really like all his work and stuff. He posted like, why does everyone grow autos? Like he's actually grown my autos. He likes them. And he was just like posing this question. Why do people grow autos if like everything else is so much better and there's so much better weed? And I was like, well, if you feel that way, sounds like a business opportunity to me. Sounds like a consumer opportunity to me. If consumers are constantly disappointed by auto flowers, sounds like someone hasn't done the fucking work and I'm willing to do that work. So, hey, let's do it and let's use the lab, right? Like that's how Mephisto got famous is they got a cut of the first lab tested proven above 22% THC to reverse into auto. That's literally how they did it. They didn't do it with fucking magic. They got the first lab tested cut that was above 20% back in the day when you couldn't find that. You mean they're auto tested at that or they use that as a mother stock? Yes, exactly. To make their first auto to get away from all these low percentage autos that were all made from low rider and everyone had a bad taste in their mouth and autos, they got i can't remember what it's the like one of the oldest guys you've had him on your show too um he passed away recently um bog yeah bog bog yeah yeah so yeah so they that's how they made their first auto it was a bog and a ruderalis that was not a um you know the shitty ones from before and then they reversed his four generations to make their first thing yeah wow what cool backstory i didn't know that and um I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on Lowrider in general, you know, because you don't really hear much from that dude who made it. I forget his name. Um, but yeah, what's your thoughts on it? Well, it's just like the best he could do at the time before gas chromatography and testing. So then it just didn't have ever above 12% THC. So no one really wanted to grow it once people started to see what potency was and figure out light depth. It's like no fucking reason, but it had its place for a couple of years. But as soon as they figured out of above 20% THC in autos, then it's on. And everyone was blown away when I would bring it to the lab. And they were like, this isn't light depth. Like, what? They were so impressed to make diamonds out of this stuff. And, you know, all the guys who work at the lab, they run through thousands of pounds of material. So whenever they see mine, they're like, ooh, look at this. A unique smell. I love this Ruderalis. It's got the fresh rain turp. It's got the fresh, you know, this turp. Oh, wow. Wow, and do you think that stock, the lowrider, was unfortunately like backed into a corner in that it would be hard to salvage it, so to speak? Exactly. Like uh, I've abandoned many of my genetics already, you know, because I marked them dead ends because I can tell. Yeah, you have to abandon the seed stock of the autos or just extract it all and not mark it for breeding. Once you understand the traits that it's expressing or not going to help the future. Like what I said, the future of autoflowers is full melt autoflowers from all the best breeders so that no one can copy it so everyone can get a little bit of butt a little bit of hash every year and we can make that culture from amsterdam like for new york city have that fucking you know grow outside of my little apartment on the windowsill yeah nice nice and and do you plan to ever do um some more photo period breeding or do you think you're just going to stick to autos for the moment um yeah we're we're always doing auto flowers and regulars um just because of the way the market uh is right now you know like they're we're not to the point where we want the full melt auto flowers so we have to keep working with all the nice full melt regular genetics and keep figuring out what the trending terpene profiles are uh this year i work with the chili verde male 
and the 24 karat gold mail um, resin ranch has picked them out and they passed a lot of my tests so we're gonna see a lot of cool chili pepper crosses like shishito i hit the cake bomb skittles with the chili verde um, i'm most excited about our lemon cane number 66 from ashuk he hunted the lemon cane to work for the rosin process really well, kind of like how I wanted my lemon fat man. And I hit the chili verde onto that. And so right now there is a flavor trend within Latin culture and within California of this flavor called tahin. I don't know if you know about tahin. Oh yeah. But yeah, we'll be release we'll be releasing lemon tahin at Ego Clash on the 9th. Oh yeah. Oh, bro. So we'll have tahini flavored rosin. <laughs> oh, dude, you're gonna have to cross that to um something watermelon flavor. You know the old staple tahini on watermelon. Okay, so we have the chamoy. Do you know about chamoy? So that's the other spice that you actually put on watermelon. So I got the watermelon ice from Canna Research, which is garlic cocktail and pineapple fizz crossed together, and it's got the freaking watermelon terps and i hit that with chili verde so we're doing tahine and chamoy oh beautiful man you got me excited that sounds delicious cool 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 well take me back the question we normally ask people at the start of the episodes what was your first experience with cannabis so my first experience getting high was at the shoreline amphitheater at like a big concert where my friend who um, grew his own cannabis and everything, you know, at 16 was like, here you go. Uh, here's this clay pipe I fired in my oven and made myself. And here's this weed I grew myself. I was like, holy shit. All right. I, I prepared myself and stuck little incense sticks in a circle around me. And I got high and I realized that everyone else at the concert was fucking high and i was like oh shit everyone's doing this i was like oh damn like no matter how old people are everyone's high like i was a great 16 year old moment of like realizing that like cannabis unites the world and all people and all cultures and all ethnicities and all age groups it's honestly why i keep doing the sesh in oakland i love the sesh the pop-up seshes because every race every sexual orientation and every age group can come and ask me about all my cannabis products and the farm and everything. And everyone can learn and come together. It gets me the highest of anything is the biodiversity of humanity and the biodiversity in the garden. Oh, a hundred percent, man. I've only been to one of the sessions in Oakland before, but like the vibe was popping, man. It was like so fun just to be there. And it was exactly how you described. Hey, it was really diverse. It was great. Absolutely. That's what cannabis is about. And that's the model that will be sustainable in the future. It's just a small little market pop up. Yeah. Killer, killer. Okay. So talk to me about how you went from that shoreline experience to thinking, I've got to plant my own seeds. I have to do this. I was lucky enough to go to college and grow up in Santa Cruz. And I understood the lifestyle somewhat, um, really started to unpeel the meaning of Santa Cruz when I went to UC Santa Cruz and sold cannabis out of my little, you know, apartment dorm room there. And I learned a lot and really brought people together. And 
I was so inspired by all the growers. We don't have a frat scene at UC Santa Cruz. You just go to Burning Man, right? So it's like all these people who had come before me had grown and, you know, successfully and sold their weed and made successful companies. And they were throwing big parties at Burning Man. And they told me how much this plant had given to them, how much it had provided and how much they had taught, you know, just they had learned in general about themselves and the world and been able to be a man with a plan and help the world. And it was very inspiring to see a lot of these psychedelic warriors out in the world and representing their Santa Cruz vibe and teaching people about cannabis and learning the science simultaneously. And yeah, I mean, if just in the scene of just smoking weed and living out and, you know, renting houses while fi- finishing your degree, you learn how to grow weed if you want to or not. Like <laughs> you, you got roommates, they're growing weeds that you're going to learn about it. Like, right. So all of a sudden it's like, wait, like this thing really grows and it just brings people together and it's so diverse and there's so many flavors and there's so many highs and it's kind of like at the birth moment, like from 2001 to 2006, where everyone started to really get into cannabis. I watched our 420 little party uh, at UC Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz go from like, you know, 420 people in like 2002 to 14,000 people by the time I graduated. I mean, we're talking exponential growth here. This stuff was growing so fast. Everyone was learning so fast. Everyone was making so much money and throwing such cool parties. And it was just an amazing scene to grow up in. And I was so inspired. And I, you know, made food for the parties as like a business, as like a side hustle, you know, and would sell my chocolates and these little things. And I I basically, you know, went homeless during college and lived on people's decks and Live in the forest sometimes, had my stuff in lockers on campus, bike around, sell weed at the skate park. You know, I really, really believed in cannabis and it believed in me. And I knew I had to sacrifice everything, all my comforts, all the things that I knew were important. Like I had to sacrifice them so I could learn about this new thing that no one knew about. So I could be ahead when the time came. And that turned out to be really tough. And I needed a lot of help. And Luckily, one day at a big rave where I had made all the fanciest chocolate treats and sushi and all this shit, this guy came up to me and he's like, bro, I got this weed grow. You seem so awesome and smart. Like I have all these people like, can you like feed us? Like we're just up on the hill. Like, can you feed us? And I was like, okay, sure. And so I like built a yurt on this guy's land after we got along. He ended up being the direct descendant of, uh, Steiner, like his name's Matthew Steiner, like as of, you know, Rudolf Steiner, who made biodynamics, invented it, and the guy who founded Waldorf School and everything. So I got to learn biodynamics from a direct descendant of it. So who was applying it to cannabis for the first time because he was the black sheep of the family with Grateful Dead Tour and took acid. So it was like, oh shit, this is like the opportunity of a lifetime. This guy's like breeding seeds and has a degree in biology and like teaches me to collect the mycelial leaf litter to make mushroom tea for the plants. Like, wow, I'm going to do this. And I fucking did that shit. I worked hard. I watched him do really good and fail in different ways. I helped at other farms and I got super inspired and I saw 
so much waste. And I knew that moment when I could plant my seed, I would be ready and I wouldn't waste anything. And I was, and I did, and now I'm here. Now I got the farm, now we got the flavors, and we got employees, and we got people who believe in us, and finally got my t-shirt, and you know, new seeds coming out all the time, yeah, finally. That's awesome, man. It's a dream come true, dude, really, honestly. Yeah, like hard work pays off and sacrifice, yeah, dude. That's beautiful to hear, man, that's that's awesome to hear you've lived such a, a an interesting and varied life. Something we referenced earlier that I want to ask you about, you know, what's your plans to to get your work more widely available? Do you think you want to get yourself out there at, say, more distributors, get more of your product out there, or do you still want to keep it a small-scale operation in a certain sense? So we'll still be a small-scale operation, but we want to expand our reach as far as, you know, feminized seeds. We'll be doing feminized uh, seeds as well as feminized autoflowers in the future all for resin production for the white and black market so that people can produce resin on their own independently or for big companies that want to like run with our flavors so that more people can be aware of the cool flavors that I'm, you know, trying to make for people, trying to make new experiences for people on the cannabis market to blow their minds. And you just got to keep up and do that work. And so, you know, we're willing to make those thousands of seeds. We're never going to make like, you know, multi-millions right we're never going to make multi-millions of seeds so we're always going to have that quality seed and get that out there and you know that's the goal for the future is to win some awards with my genetics that's my that's my next goal oh amazing and, and which which uh, award would be the one you'd be most keen to achieve in uh, your career oh just you know something for the rosin just something that blows everyone's mind you know so that people you know like if I could, ideally, this is what I really want. I want to make an autoflower rosin flavor that wins and people don't know it's autoflower. So then people are like, oh shit, I've always talked shit about autoflowers because I thought they were the same as cannabis and I screwed it up when I grew it. But maybe I should look into that again. Ha, <laughs> huh, that's brilliant. And I mean, as a sort of just a rough guess, how far off in time do you think we are from when that sort of thing might be possible? Oh, only 12 months. Oh, yeah, I've been working on this the last five years. Oh, yeah. Uh, just another year push. I think by, by this time next year, we'll have the full melt genetics. So I'll be making rosin in 80 days from the seed germination day. Wow, that would be special. I would love to ask, is there anywhere people can go to get your seeds now? Uh, so right now, uh, the website still hasn't gotten built, but we're going to do that. That's basically the plan for the next three months. But so far, we just, um, you know, just go on Instagram and let me know where you're at and figure out if our local laws can make it work. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Get in touch with him. And a question I love to ask all our guests from your perspective, doesn't have to be from the general public's perspective. It can be because of some special reason to you. For you, what's the rarest seeds in your vault? Well, I have, you know, just a few seeds of landrace, like pure landrace that I haven't popped yet. So I have those pure Tanzanian. I have some pure Argentinian. I have some pure uh, Crimean from the Crimean Peninsula. Um I actually grew those out this year and I'm very excited about that because I found in cannabis that I've never really found before. I did one post about it. Basically 
it flowered, it got seeded, and then it flowered again. So once it got the signal that it was seeded, it, it grew four more branches from its root zone and started flowering again. And then that got seeded and then it flowered again. So it flowered five times. And so I hit that, I crossed that with the Satsuma Sherb. So I'm thinking about like the future of cannabis where it's like a auto flower timing. So in 80 days, you get like a QP. And then a hundred days later, you get a half pound. And then October, you get even more and you cut it back three times. I, I, it was amazing. Yeah. So that's what I'm most excited about for genetic traits is something I've never seen before. That's really exciting. I've never heard anything about that at all. Cool, cool, cool. So so this next one, it's a general question, but I'm wondering, what is your hope overall for the trajectory of the scene? I hope that the legacy operators and like those who care and have won awards pre-2016 who have families will continue to thrive. And I sincerely hope that the billionaires and Canadian investors continue to go bankrupt because it's not helping anything. I couldn't believe the facility they built in Death Valley over here in California. It's like over a hundred million dollar glass house. The hot water that comes out of the earth naturally there is like 110 degrees. So they have all these chillers just to get the water cool. And I just couldn't help but think like they could have just put cow poop on the earth and put a barbed wire fence and then just gotten those Afghani genetics that can just withstand hot weather all year or Moroccan and then just done a land race in the Death Valley instead of building a hundred million dollar facility. So I feel like anyone who's like kind of like trying to like build their way to their empire needs to just stop and like do something else and like realize that like, you know, there's people who care and there's people who have done the business for a long time and yeah, you can buy their IP. Some guys will sell you their intellectual property or whatever, but anyone who would do that doesn't really know or doesn't really care about being in it long term. So it's like a, it's a tricky point right now. There's a lot of guys who are doing that right now, my age who are like, Oh, I've been in the business. I'm just going to sell all my information to a rich guy. And then I don't have to worry. I can raise my family. I'm not saying I judge you. I'm just saying like, man, it sucks. You know, it's like the paradigm shift. So. Yeah, definitely a tough situation. It's hard to blame people. I'd love to follow up. You mentioned it a few times, the greasy versus tacky feeling of trichomes. I know that you often hear people talking about greasy being good for concentrates, but I believe you broke it down into like a further sort of subdivision. How would you describe to people like the way trichomes should feel for each style of production? So the ones that leave a slippery grease on your fingers are the ones that are going to make good diamonds. And those are going to be antagonistic to the water process. And it's like the alpha pinene terp. So we thought this one would wash last year. You know, we had 6,000 grams of it. It looked awesome. Perfect rainbow smell, but it was a little piney. And I was worried we got like a 0.05, you know, 0.5 wash, you know, it was like half a percent. Right. But not only that, like the texture of it gummed up all the filters in the water rosin process. So then they had to do an alcohol wash just to clean, just to do another run. So not only does it like screw everything up, it makes it a lot harder to like make water hash again if you use the wrong, uh, you know, starting material. 
So basically, yeah, the greasy material is not going to work. And your super tacky material that like stretches like a spider web or sandy to the touch, that can work a lot better. And then obviously the whole jar tech everyone talking about where you put uh, 20 grams of fresh frozen in a mason jar and then shake it with ice cold water and then see what knocks off. And the idea is that if you got 20 grams and you've got a five percenter, then you'll see one gram of trichomes fall off into the corner. And you should be able to see what a pile of one gram looks like. And if you don't have that, then you're looking at not a rosin winner. Yeah, That's a great breakdown. That's why the resin dial was invented too. Ah, okay. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So on to the final five questions we ask all our guests. Great. What was the single most memorable cannabis experience you've ever had? It doesn't have to be like the strongest hit, but just most memorable for whatever reason. Oh, oh! by far being the judge, uh, Taylor T. Beasel chose, chose me as a secondary judge for uh, the Emerald Cup before Skittles was known as a strain. And so before Rosin was in the Emerald Cup, I got to dab full melt and put it in order. I came to the Airbnb in, at midnight and I stayed for five hours or till 4.20 in the morning. I was so high, never been that high in my life. And, you know, Cuban grower and all the guys in the resin industry were like, oh, we've got these hashes. We've got to put them in order. We've got to figure out a winner. They just have numbers on them. You've got to write notes. You've got to be a judge. You've got to. And I fucking took dabs of everything and took notes and, you know, five star, six star. What kind of flavors, multiple flavors? Is there a flavor on the inhale, in the mouth? And is there an aftertaste? Is it genetically similar to something I've had or not? So I did all those things on 20 rosins and then put them in an order. And then they made, a, made dab them again and make sure that the top five were the top five. And I voted for this number one that I remember the note still, multiple fruit flavors. And every time I hit it, even the second time I found other fruit flavors. And that ended up being the Skittles, which is what made Brandon famous and everything. So that was definitely the best high experience was like trying to figure out the shit with no names and just numbers on them that sounds beautiful and just for clarification's sake what do you think of the genetics in skittles oh yeah everyone's fucking like oh it's a pink grapefruit and oh it's a green sherbet and oh it's like i, I mean i was just like yo let's see the terp test if you know how to grow it and it's high in osamine then it's gonna have the dominant terpene that almost all rosin doesn't have most rosin has limonene, myrcene, or beta-caryophylline. So if you try that osamine flavor, if you grow it correctly and it has high osamine and it's the dominant one, that's the Skittles fucking amazing, awesome flavor. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, what is something where everyone was hyping it up, you were super keen to try it, and then when you did, you were left a bit disappointed? Oh, let's see. Uh, Purple Punch, um, Gorilla Glue. uh, I've never really liked Bubba. Everyone swears by their old school 98 Bubba. Eh, I'd rather have Malibu Pure Kush any day over that Bubba. It's just like, you know, astringent limes versus like a floral rush. Uh, I mean, so many people try to market all these um crosses like the gelato 33 it's all right you know i've 
the original sherbet is good. Um, cherry pie is pretty overhyped. Uh, a lot of sour diesels, you know, because the original cut so lost. So it's like everyone's like, oh, this prefix on sour diesel. I'm like, there ain't no sour gas and rancidity in here, you know. A lot of things. I mean, that's why we're, it's like why there's opportunity, right, for geneticists, because there's like kind of a lot of like mishmash flavors that have been rehybridized too many times. They don't taste like anything in particular. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. So, next question. If I'm going to drop you off on a desert island and you can take three strains with you for the rest of time, what three things are you going to take? You can take clones or seeds. All right. Uh, let's see. Durban poison, for sure. Uh, honey bananas. To offset that, it's like completely different. It's like the opposite. Like Durban poison is fucking not sweet. It ain't fruity and it ain't you know, sedating at all. And then honey bananas does all those things. It's sweet, sedating, fruity as fuck. Oh, uh, let's see. What's the one that I freaking love recently? I grew a Wilson cross that was like a mind flare. I, I didn't know the background, um, but it tasted like pink marshmallows. But man, I guess the Trop cookies, because the, the Trop cookies hit me harder than any. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Because that I didn't really realize how good Trop cookies was until, you know, someone with like living soil, indoor LED who like wins awards like touches that cut and like actually cares you know luckily heads that roll like relocated to our zone so i get to trade with them and try their stuff wow you can just taste the care in that orange flavor and so then that's not in honey bananas or durbin yeah so that's my three definitely good list good list uh in an alternative situation we're gonna drop someone else off at the island someone you're not a big fan of you get to pick which three strains we leave them with. What are you going to leave them with? Oh, so they, okay. So they like need a lesson. Yeah. Well, it's up to you what you want to do, but I'm interested. <laughs> what three things are you going to leave them with? Uh, I would leave them with like the land race from Tanzania that probably has like, you know, 5% THC maybe, you know, so they can like earn some respect for all like the work of the continent of Africa and the thousands of years that people have done without credit, you know. Um, and then like green crack, just because it's like a horrible weed with a horrible high and a horrible name. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> let's see, what's like really bland, like that's like. Like the like blue dream cross. It's like like not the real Santa Cruz blue dream, but like the blue dream hay. That's like the like, oh yeah. Like, oh god damn that one's horrible, bro. It's so like hay and it produces the best looking blue dream buds better than the original, but it has no terps. And so it's like this horrible cut that got around because someone was insidious like, and decided to do that, they should stay there with that too. That's the person who should go there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay, so final question. If I could give you a time machine, you can go back to any period in history. You can go anywhere to collect some seeds or clones. Where are you going to go? What are you going to collect? I wouldn't have to go back far. Yeah, I would just go back to like, 
92 and just like have you could get all that seed stock from the 80s and then some of those new ogs and these things like the real pure kush and all that exclusive stuff yeah and then just start breeding with it the way i knew how yeah and then buy bitcoin i'll be set where is this time machine let's go i love it getting on the crypto beautiful stuff so i think that just about brings us to the end of it are there any general comments or shout outs you'd like to make uh yeah just uh appreciate your always you know considerate dedication to your questions and you know your show putting it out there and being detailed about you know who you put on your show and all the things you have to go through it's taught me a lot i was inspired to be on it inspired to listen to it absolutely it's really good work you're doing we need more people like you Oh, you're too kind, my friend. Well, again, thank you so, so much for coming on the show, for sharing all of your knowledge, be it on concentrates, extraction, breeding, growing, autos, the whole gamut. I really enjoyed it. So again, a huge thank you to Sean of Flying Lion Research for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, buddy. I can't wait to trade seeds with you. huge thank you to sean for joining us and a huge thank you to you for supporting the show and for making it to the end thank you to our incredible sponsors seeds here now all the latest breeders the hottest drops guarantee on satisfaction and germination check them out Likewise, again, big shout out to our friends at Copert Biological Systems, providing all the predators you need to keep your garden pest and pathogen free. Check out the Spidex Vital if you're worried about spider mites. You should release these things periodically, guys, I promise you. You will view it as an investment in your garden, ensuring that you never have any spider mites in your garden should be one of your key priorities as a cultivator. Huge shout out Copert Biological Systems. We appreciate you and your support. Likewise, Pulse Sensors. Do you want more yield, more resin, better flour, better concentrates? Who doesn't? Check out Pulse, guys. If you're ready to get serious, get a Pulse Sensor. From a single tent to a single room to a multi-facility operation. Don't let hidden variables hold your crop back. Get your grow parameters in check and start yielding the highest quality possible. Huge shout out, Pulse Sensors. Thank you so much. Likewise, big shout out to the Patreon gang. We love and appreciate you. Please consider checking out the Patreon if you want early access to upcoming episodes, additional interviews you won't get access to unless you're on there, as well as genetic giveaways and ad-free content. Check it out, friends. That's the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. All one word. We love and appreciate you. Stay tuned. We've got some more fun content on the way. We'll see you.